can I encourage you to grab your Bible and please could you open it to uh, the 32nd Psalm, Psalm 32. Let me read then, I'm going to read the entire Psalm and then we're going to take it section by section. It's a masculine, it says of David. So obviously, um, given that we've been spending our time thinking about the life of David and the humility of David as a model of um, a humble king, I wanted to take us to this particular psalm because it is, in many ways, an insight into um, not just a window into the floor, the fact that he is flawed like you and I, but how he dealt with those flaws and uh, how he brought them to, to God in confession. A masculine of David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters... They shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or he'll not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I'm very aware that whenever we gather um, as God's people, we come into the room with all kinds of experiences and a good deal of mess as well that we bring with us. And even um, perhaps beneath all the smiling and the laughter and the joy of a weekend like this and the sense that we've all met with God and encountered Him in some way, I'm also aware that there are those aspects of your life that perhaps are less visible and that trouble you. And I'm thinking particularly of sin and the conscience and the guilt that many carry. For some this is a chronic burden that you may have lived with mistakes that you've made, perhaps in even in distant memory. In Martin Lloyd-Jones' series of sermons that became a book, Spiritual Depression, entitles one of the chapters, That One Sin. and speaks of how Christians can live their lives under the constant sense of the cloud of that one sin. It's not that you have repeated it or gone back to it. In fact, you regret it bitterly, but it seems that it's weighing on you all the time. And 
you know, we, if we were as transparent with one another as we are before God, we'd know that there are people in this room who carry that one sin, an abortion, a messy relationship that was sexually compromised, an offense that you caused to a loved one or a parent that you wish you could undo. Dishonest action that no one knew about. I am certain that there are people in this room who feel that they are burdened by such things. For others of you, you're in the heat of battle even now, that you're in a moment that you could actually think of as a kind of why in the road. And perhaps although you're here on a weekend with fellow believers in Christ and you feel okay, I know, th- I know what I need to do. You're also conscious that in going back to your normal life, you have a decision to take. And that decision could draw you away from the Lord. And, uh, you know, one of the great tragedies of pastoral work, the sadnesses, I should say, of pastoral work is seeing that up close, seeing people make the wrong decision many times. And uh, as conscience troubles an individual, it's also true that temptation can be overwhelming. And uh, the, the kind of sense of um, being drawn to something that you know is wrong and that ultimately pull you away from the Lord. And others of you, it's not so much that there's these great big crises, either in the past or in the present, but it's the constant cycle of sin, the, the, the way in which you can't seem to shake it off you and uh, you're unable to, to finally put it behind you and to bury it once and for all. Our consciences are... are, are um, often troubled. And the consequence of that is often a a measure of spiritual misery and of being unhappy in the Lord. So when we come to Jesus, we come needing food, needing medicine, and needing clothing. Jesus said of himself that he's the bread of life. And so he offers us food to sustain and to nourish us and to restore us in himself. He says it here in John chapter 6. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. We come to him famished and hungry, and he wants to give us himself as food. We also come with our sickness, spiritual sickness, in need of medicine. In Luke chapter 5, Verse 22, we're told about Jesus that he is the great physician who comes to bring his medicine and healing to us and to our souls, our broken lives. And in Luke 15, he's spoken of, he, he speaks in his parable of the, uh, the prodigal son of God wanting to enrobe and clothe people whose lives are broken. We come for food, we come for medicine, we come for clothing. We, want to, we come in tattered and broken to the presence of Jesus and we emerge having experienced his healing power, his nurturing, his nourishment, his grace, his forgiveness, his, his, his transforming power. And friends, my hope is that in our meditation this morning, that the Lord's going to do such a work in many lives today. 
I want to work through this psalm sequentially. It's a beautiful psalm because it just unfolds before you as you read it verse by verse um, in such a, a way that's so easy to understand. So let's read again the first two verses. Blessed is the man or the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This psalm is seeking to answer the question, how do we experience lasting happiness? The language of blessedness, sometimes I think because it has this religious archaic feel to it, masks the fact that it is really just a word that the ancients understood to mean happiness and joy in the deepest part of your soul. So when he opens with this statement, blessed is the one who... He's answering the question, how can I experience real happiness in life? And he's saying, this is where happiness comes from. And the answer that he begins to give them is really the, the experience of redemption. That we, we as humans are longing for a deep and lasting joy that can only be satisfied in, in Christ. Every decision you take in life is a quest for this happiness. The places you go, the choices you make around work, the relationships that you engage in, the, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, everything that, that all the choices you make in life are a quest for this happiness and they're, they're, they're a pursuit in answer to this question, who is happy? And the answer that David gives us is this, that the happy person is the one who is forgiven. And he says it three times so that there is no doubt in three different ways. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. You've crossed the line and he says, God says, it's okay. I've dealt with that transgression. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. That the wrong that you did, even if it is that one sin, has been buried in the ground, never to be recalled again. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? That even if you and I, feel the shame of our sin so that the memory of it can bring a fresh flush to your cheeks. The scriptures tell us that God doesn't remember it. It's not that he isn't able to remember it, but that he chooses not to. That he separates you from your sin as far as the east is from the west and takes it away from you. Blessed is the one whose transgression is covered. It's completely out of sight. It is not visible. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. We have a number of finance people in the room, auditors and accountants who know how to make every line in the finance sheet balance. But here, what he's describing is the, the imbalance, the fact that though you have accumulated an enormous debt, that debt has been cleared. And it is as though you never were in debt to begin with. Blessed is the one whose tra transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. But here's the key, friends, and here's where you have to understand the insight that David has. Look at the last verse of the line of verse two. The one in whose spirit there is no deceit. We 
I think, are prone to lying. We lie to God. We lie to others. I think we even lie to ourselves. And David's insight here is that although he wants and has experienced the happiness himself and wants everyone to experience it, he says it's not available when you have deceit in your life. And this is where we need to understand the power of confession that comes through in this psalm and the humility that's necessary for a person to confess. Let's read on verse 3 to 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Although David's begun the psalm by telling us how free forgiveness is. You can be forgiven, it can be covered, it can be atoned for, it can be not accounted to you. The truth is that although forgiveness is free, it does not come to you automatically. It's not available without certain prerequisites in place. I remember some years ago, probably eight or so years ago, there were, there's a law when we belong, belong to the EU that, that said that if, uh, if a flight was delayed by a certain number of hours, or indeed if it was canceled, that the airlines or the airports, whoever was responsible, had to reimburse you either for a portion or for the entirety of the cost of the flight. And it was a little-known law. Um, not many people seem to have been aware of it or taken advantage of it. And uh, this one year, my wife and I had the kind of um, airport experience from hell where we ended up running with our bags on our backs from terminal to terminal, sweating profusely, and gasping as we arrived at the gate, and then being ushered onto the plane as the last two people on our, on our replacement flight, and then to our great astonishment, being invited to turn left rather than turn right. And so we walked in, and I felt immense sense of imposter walking in among all the rich people, wearing my sweaty, I'd already changed into my kind of um, my, my loungewear, so to speak, you know. <laughs> And uh, I was sweating profusely. I just felt like this is not the place for me. I do not belong. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. <laughs> and actually, it ended up being the best flight I'd ever experienced. So if ever you can afford to go business class, I recommend it. Um, it hasn't become our habit, as you understand. But I was, it was the best flight of my life. But what made it even better? What made it even more sweet? So when the trip was ended, I wrote the complaint email. I didn't even consult Luke Boardman on this one. I just knew what to write. And the consequence was we got all our money back. And it's like, not only did we go for free, we flew business class. It could not get any better than that. It was the favor of the Lord. Amen. Let's not get too prosperity here, friends. But um, some things in life are free, but not automatic. You have to actually ask. You have to make the request. Or you have to put in the effort. Some things can be yours, but not, uh, not available to you. I remember reading a few years ago, there was a man uh, called James Howells, who in 2013 had um, lost a hard drive. Now, this hard drive contained 8,000 Bitcoin, which when he purchased them were of very little worth. 
but they had obviously accumulated worth so that by 2022, which I, th I think perhaps was when the, the article came out, <clears throat> they were worth somewhere, the articles varied, but they were worth somewhere between 150 million, 250 million dollars. It was something ridiculous like that. And uh, he disposed of this computer and its hard drive in the dump in Newport in Wales. And uh, he offered Newport Council 50 million quid to help him find if they found the hard drive. And you can understand why, can't you? Because this is his possession, but he was not able to benefit from it. And there's something of that dynamic in the Christian life, that there are there's something available to you, this happiness, this joy, this liberty, this freedom, this lightness of heart and of spirit. And yet so many Christians live as though this inheritance were not theirs. Live under the cloud, live with misery, live with a, a tortured and a fractured conscience. Unable to experience lasting joy and liberty. Why? I think the answer David gives here is when you keep silent. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. It may be because you're sulking and wallowing in a sense of self-pity. It wasn't my fault. It may be because you're trying to justify yourself. You regard God's ways as unreasonable, even though your conscience is, is telling you what God's will is. And David says that this was his condition. We actually don't know when he wrote the psalm. This famous Psalm 51 is the one that he wrote immediately after Nathan had confronted him about his adultery with Bathsheba. He'd lived with the guilt and the shame of that adultery and the murder of her husband for a year. And Nathan confronts him. And what led, that led to was the gushing out of the confession in Psalm 51. And anybody who's found themselves ashamed of sexual sin in particular has found solace in turning Psalm 51 into prayer. So Psalm 51 seems to have been the very raw, immediate response of the relief that came through confession of his sin. But Psalm 32 seems to be a more measured analysis and reflection upon some distance from that, that kind of an experience. Perhaps it's that same event that he's writing about here in our psalm. But it seems to have been written sometime later as he reflects on the experience he has. He says, when I kept silent, we know he was silent for a year about the wrong that he'd done. And what is the, the, the result that it had on him? There are a couple of things that he experienced here that, friend, I want to warn you, this will be your experience also if you're not right with God. The first one is he says that he experienced a kind of physical and emotional burden that was almost unbearable. He said, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David's talking about the way his body began to express and reveal the torment of soul that he was experiencing. When he kept silent, when he kept his sin under wraps, it was like having radioactive material in his own flesh 
corrupting and destroying his body from the inside out. He was experiencing the physical ailments that come from a tortured soul. I think the world is beginning to awaken to this kind of reality in a partial sense. You walk through Waterstones, you'll see books about the way that trauma can affect your health long term. You can have physical ailments like um, high blood pressure, which ultimately can kill you, or, um, or uh, autoimmune diseases that all seem to stem back from emotional and spiritual traumas that people have experienced. And if, if we're aware of that because we can, uh, we can acknowledge in our day and age that we've been victims and that our victimhood also then can lead to these kinds of physical effects. Perhaps one facet of this that we're not yet seeing in the secular world at least is a sense in which it's not just your victimhood, it's also your, your guilt, your culpability, the mess you made. And I'm not sure that our world has begun to see the importance and the power of atonement, confession, as a means to experience health, physical and emotional and spiritual health. David says, my bones wasted away, my strength was dried up. He's experiencing, he's experienced, he experienced depression. There's no doubt in my mind. Had he been around today, he would have seen his GP. He would have been given a course of Prozac. He was utterly depressed. And that depression stemmed from his sin. When I kept silent, he said. He also is aware, another aspect to this is the fact that God himself opposed him. He says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, the Christian's normal experience of walking with God is of undeserved favor and the sunshine of his grace. We were all shocked yesterday, weren't we, that it was sunny all day? Because the forecast was for rain and misery. And uh, that was waiting for today. But it was unbelievable, wasn't it, to experience sunshine. And the way that that just changes your whole frame. It changes your whole outlook. And the Christian's normal experience is walking under the sunshine of God's grace and of his favor and his love. That should be the, the ordinary day-to-day -day, um, emotional experience you have of being the child of God. That's grace. But the New Testament is full of warnings. It's full of warnings that even as believers, we can suffer because of God's discipline in our lives. James 5 talks about the power of confession, but it's against the backdrop of some people in the congregation being sick. Physically sick because of unconfessed sin. I'm not sure that's the first place we go, is it, when we are suffering a physical ailment? Do I have an unaddressed sin in my life that I need to bring before God and perhaps before a brother or sister in Christ? Ephesians 4 talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is your counselor. He's your guide. He's your comforter. So how do you think it feels when the Spirit is grieved? 
with your behavior, your stance, your defiance. This is a warning to a Christian, that the one who is supposed to bring comfort to you, his presence expresses the displeasure of God because he's grieved by your sin. 1 Peter 3, a warning very specific to husbands, says that if we don't live with your wife with understanding, a very specific sin, he says God won't listen to your prayers. Now that seems almost incomprehensible to us because we take it for granted that if I pray, God's listening. Peter says, oh no, God can close his ears to your prayers. And perhaps it's not just over that specific sin that God might close his ear to you. I don't think he ever closes his ear to the repentant, by the way. But if you feel like you're banging on a, on a ceiling, as it were, unable to feel connected with and close to the Lord, have you asked yourself the question, is it on account of your sin? Revelation 2 speaks about Jesus removing the lampstand from a church. Revelation 3 speaks about Jesus spitting a church out of his mouth. These are corporate sins. But where sin is tolerated within the context of the body, where there is overlooked and where it is tacitly approved of because no one's addressing it, no one's confronting it, no one's dealing with it, no one's repenting of it. Jesus says, I can grow so, he can grow so sick of a church that the entire church is rejected in some way, closed down. And many churches have experienced this. There's so many closed churches, aren't there? Acts chapter 5 is perhaps the most sobering story in the New Testament because the sin of a husband and the sin of a wife in which they seek to lie to the Holy Spirit results in their death. Perhaps you and I, we think of this stuff as just Old Testament stuff. No, no. It's not long after the birth of the church. God instills the fear of himself into the congregation. We are a holy people. We do not take sin lightly. This is what David's talking about. When I kept silent, he says, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Have you ever felt parched where your lips and your mouth have dried out? Your eyes feel dry. He's saying that was the spiritual experience I was undergoing. And then it all turns. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Dear friends, we have been thinking about the importance of humility this weekend. And seeking to gain some kind of insight into the heart of a man who models for us, despite all having earthly reasons to be one of the most proud men on earth, he was nevertheless deeply humbled. Even the fact that he wrote this and the fact that he allowed this to be read, the honest confession of the flaws of a man just like you and I, King David. This is humble confession. 
I want you to think about how countercultural this is. The typical image these days, because it's so commonplace, is of many, many people seeking therapy for their messed up hearts and minds. And going to the therapist to talk about all the ways that other people have hurt you. And that's not irrelevant. That's not unimportant. But very few people these days are willing to take responsibility for the wrong they've done. Now listen to how David explains the power of confession. He says, confession is like breathing. Just breathe now. Take a deep breath. And exhale. Do it again. And exhale. Now let's get our yoga pants on, shall we? Let's do this again. <laughs> when you hold your breath too long, you feel an agony. When I was a boy around 13 or 14 years of age, we used to go swimming every week at the, the swimming pool um, not so far from our house on a, on a Sunday evening. And I used to love to challenge myself to see how many lengths I could swim underwater. It's a 25-meter pool, a full-length pool. And uh, after working at this for a number of weeks, I could swim about four lengths underwater, 100 meters without taking a breath. And um, by the end of it, I actually realized now it's incredibly dangerous. <laughs> a friend of mine is a free diver, and he says, you never dive alone, because when you hold your breath, as you're coming to the surface, your body can just pass out. And then in your unconscious state, you just drown because you don't breathe. Um, you sink into the water. And uh, I, I wasn't aware of these dangers as a boy. And I remember the agony as my lungs and my body were screaming for a fresh breath of oxygen. You've all been there, right? You ever had that experience of being caught under a wave? And it can literally be three seconds as you tumble under a wave and you feel powerless. It can be three seconds. One, two, three, maybe four or five. It feels like an eternity. You're like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And you want to get up to the surface to take in oxygen because you know without it, you're dead. You're gone. To come into God's presence is like emerging from under the water. And you exhale in confession. The toxic carbon dioxide that's accumulating and turning into an acidic presence in your blood. And you inhale oxygen of forgiveness and of grace. And you feel alive again. Confession is like washing. There are times when in my life when I felt desperate for a wash. I'm a sweaty man, what can I say? After a long flight, after that long flight, in my business class loungewear, after manning a barbecue 
for any length of time. You feel sticky and disgusting, don't you? And there are times when sin feels like that on a person. It's an interesting thing to me that even secular psychologists are aware of this dynamic. That it's been proven that when people feel guilty for something, they intuitively want to go and wash their bodies. They want to go and step into a shower. I wonder how many people have been on a one-night stand and as soon as they get home, step under a shower to feel clean again. It's commonplace, isn't it? Because our bodies and our souls are so integrated that even our physical urges like this are teaching us that we were designed to be clean before the presence of God. And to feel dirty is, is an uncomfortable feeling. It's unpleasant. You want to wash. Confession is like breathing. It's like washing. Confession is like surgery. At some point in our lives, many of us here will discover some ailment in our bodies, a lump, a ruptured appendix, a clogged artery. It's hard to think of now because many, most of you are young and fresh of face, youthful and vigorous, but you won't be one day. And your body will tell you that something's wrong. I was speaking to a brother recently who had a, an acute appendicitis at one stage, and he said that as he was being prepped for the operation and uh, the anesthetist was about to put him under the, um, into that state of sleep or unconsciousness, he said he'd never felt more afraid in, in all his life. It was a strange and irrational fear, but the sense of vulnerability because he knew that he may not there's always a risk. He may not emerge from the other side of the surgery. And uh, he, he'd never known a fear like it, he said. And it seems to me that many people withhold confession through fear. It requires trust. It requires trust in the steadiness of the surgeon's hand that he knows what he's doing. He knows how to deal with you without destroying you. He knows how to carefully make those incisions to to cut the sin out of your life and the mess and the consequences of it whilst allowing you to live and thrive and survive on the other side. I want to be clear, friends, that I'm not primarily talking about confession to another person. It can be helpful. It is offered to us in James chapter 5 as a method experiencing healing and I've known that in my own life and I've seen it in the lives of others holding on to your sin and keeping it secret never benefits you never when you bring it into the light it suddenly seems to lose its terrifying power it's a humbling act isn't it it requires death to yourself suddenly it no longer has the hold on you that it once had. I want to encourage you, if you feel that you are under the grip and the power of sin, 
bring it into the light with the trusted brother or sister in Christ can be the means by which, the God-ordained means by which you experience, begin to experience real freedom. But the Bible tells us that more important than bringing it to the light in front of a brother or sister is going straight to God. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the one you go to. Psalm 51, when David is pouring out that raw confession to God of his sin, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, that wasn't true in one sense. He'd sinned against Bathsheba. He'd sinned against Uriah. He'd sinned against the nation. But he's saying that ultimately, the offense that I have caused to you, God, makes it as though I've only sinned against you. Because you're the only one at the end of the day who really matters. Against you, you only have I sinned. And therefore, when I'm speaking here about the confession, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. It's to him you must go first and foremost. Now we're going to wrap this psalm up more quickly as we consider the final part. This, this psalm is interesting because it's partly autobiographical. He's reflecting on things he's done. But it's also instruction. He's written it for our instruction. He wants to teach us because he doesn't want people to make the same mistakes he's made. What a gracious gift David is to us. And so the final part of the psalm is a mixture of warnings and promises, warning and promise. And that's how we're going to understand it as it unfolds. Read verse 6 and 7 with me. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The first warning and the first promise of these. The warning is the tragedy of delay. Let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. I think the one area where I feel most powerless as a pastor, but also just as a brother to other believers in Christ, is the frustration I can feel when I know that someone is making the wrong decision. And no matter what I say, no matter how direct, there is an unwillingness to respond. It is the height of human pride, isn't it? The hubris. To know that you are walking in the wrong and to believe and think that you can deal with it later. To think that there's still time. Psalm 95 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
And as I've told you before, I think the, 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 the import, the thrust of that line is that God may not speak to you tomorrow. Your conscience may become seared and numbed like a burned finger that can no longer feel sensation. Your conscience can become numbed to your sin. God may withdraw. That's how his judgment is expressed in Romans chapter 1, that his judgment isn't afflicting us there. His judgment is simply pulling back, no longer speaking to us, no longer convicting us of sin. So the conviction you feel now, you may never feel again. And though you live an untroubled life, you face a terrifying end. That's the warning of Scripture. Let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. What is the time that he's speaking about? It is now. It is never tomorrow. It is always now. You cannot guarantee tomorrow. Death can come so quickly. Just this week, a number of us lost a dear friend who died suddenly. The reason that he counsels this urgency is because he says God can come like a flood. He says, surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. The promise here is that for the person who is in a good, right place with God, you're in a safe harbor when the flood comes. You're on high ground. God's judgment is like a giant battleship. The safest place as it levels its assault is inside the battleship where you are invulnerable to the cannons and their firepower. God's judgment is like a hurricane as it whirls and swirls and destroys everything. But the one place where there is perfect peace and calm is in the eye of the storm. David is saying, rush to God. Because when you rush to him, you're in the safe place as the floods wash over. It's interesting, isn't it, that when the flood came, Noah and his family found refuge in the ark, that box that floated on the water. And it's interesting that in the Hebrew, it's the same word that names the ark of the covenant that we are thinking about later, that place where the presence of God dwells. And I think the Lord is speaking to us about judgment there, that the only place that's safe from his judgment is near his presence, inside the ark, with God. And this is David's counsel. When you're running away from God, you cannot outrun him. That is when you're in danger, when your decision to get right with him is being delayed, when you are not listening, you're not turning away, you're not repenting. The storm and the flood are chasing you and they will overcome you, he's saying. But offer prayer to him when a time when he may be found. And the great waters, they shall not reach. They won't reach you. You're safe. 
The final warning and the final promise come like this. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. His second warning, much like the first really, is the warning, the tragedy of being stubborn. Most of this psalm is about the gospel, about the goodness of God. But the sad reality in life is that even the goodness of God can be rejected. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, a stupid animal. I don't have a lot of experience of handling donkeys. I do have children, though. And sometimes you have that frustrating feeling that you're repeating yourself. Ad infinitum, ad nauseum. It is a frustrating thing at times. And David is saying, you know, a mule is a famously stubborn animal. An animal that has to be almost um, mistreated, almost abused in order, to, 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 um, in order for its will to be broken. And so they'll begin to obey its master. And he's saying, don't be like one of those animals. But God has to afflict you with pain. He has to discipline you in order to finally bring you to a place of repentance. Don't be like the horse or the mule with bit and bridle, with the painful metal between your mouth to guide you and to lead you and to force you to a place of transformation and repentance and choosing the right rather than the wrong. Don't be like them, he says. Don't be stubborn. Don't be stupid. And then the promise that you can experience the love of God now. There are the sorrows, he says, of the wicked in verse 10, but he says, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. David's heart here is the heart of a pastor or of a shepherd wanting to lead people to a place of the experience of real joy and happiness. And I just want to remind you as I close of some of the promises of Jesus in the New Testament towards those who come to him. Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. It's the oxygen, the refreshing Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus wants you to know his rest. You can try and outrun the storm, and it will break you, or you can turn around and walk to him. John 10.10, the promise of Christ is, I came that they may have life and have it in abundance. Life does not just mean being alive. It means the richness and the joy and the vitality of walking with God. And it's not just about the extension of your life. 
When we think of eternal life, we think about life that doesn't end, being extended into eternity. It's about the quality of the life that God wants to give you. It is abundant life. So he's promising rest. He's promising abundant life. He promises refreshment. We think here about John chapter 4 and how when Christ addressed the woman at the well, how he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. A a sense of constantly refreshing, thirst-quenching, life-giving water coming into your soul. That's what it means to be near God. And here's the last one I want to read to you. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Whenever a Christian is making erroneous, foolish decisions, it's always a quest for satisfaction. But it's always a fool's errand because it results in a life that is ultimately broken. And Jesus says, no, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then you'll be satisfied. We're going to respond in worship now. But as we do so, I want to lead us in a moment of prayer. Just before I got up to preach, my wife pointed to the ground here in front of us, and there was a caterpillar wriggling its way across the carpet. These are not things we normally experience in church, but we do here in in Ashburnham. And I think the Lord, in a sense, was calling our attention to that prophetically because my hope and prayer is that for some of you, coming away on this weekend away is like a caterpillar going into its chrysalis. That actually the real transforming work of God in your life hasn't yet happened for some of you. It's happening here and now. This is a moment of transformation. And going back to London, you don't need to go back hopeless, thinking I'm just going back the way I was. You're going back transformed and changed. And you're more beautiful. You're more attractive. You're more free than you were before. You're not wriggling on your belly in the mud. You're liberated. You're able to fly. You're able to experience the the breath of God carrying you from one place to another, which is what ought to be the normal experience of the Christian life. And I want to pray for that for us now. And it may be the case that you must have dealings with God right now that will result in you experiencing the power of God to change you. And of course, there may be things you have to do after this event. People you need to speak to, wrongs you need to make right, or confession you need to offer to somebody. But it is to God you come right now. Let's all bow our heads.